Years ago, a man by the name of Gordon Bennett placed his retirement savings with a reputable investor. Month after month, year after year, he, uh, his uh, account statements uh, every month indicated a steady, though not spectacular, return and uh, indicated a, a, a steady uh, growth of his income, assuring him of a comfortable financial future. A few times over the years, government regulators investigated, reviewed that investment firm, and always came away giving them a clean bill of health. So Gordon Bennett felt secure. 2008, though, the stock market began to struggle, leading to the day uh, shortly thereafter that he received the news that his investment advisor, Bernie Madoff, had been arrested, and all his money was gone. This man that Gordon Bennett had trusted, uh, had entrusted his whole future to, uh, he had been depositing all the money that his investors were sending in. Instead of actually investing it, he was putting it in his own bank account. Over decades, he had accumulated over $60 billion of other people's money and had lavishly been spending it on himself and his family and friends. Now more than 5,000 people were left destitute for their future. Gordon Bennett was one of them. He was ruined. He was in despair. Now let's shift the scenario. I'd like you to picture something that's even worse. This time it's not somebody else, it's you. And it's not your money, it's your soul that is at risk. You have perhaps entrusted your future destiny to God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. But then you read, as we read uh, last, week, uh, uh, last time at the beginning of Romans 11, that God made similar promises to the nation of Israel and seems to have changed his mind about them. Their future is not looking too good at all right now, and God seems to be the catalyst that is uh, uh, holding them back, pushing them away, making life hard, making the future very dim. Well, if God could do that to the Jewish people, what's that say about our sense of security, about these similar promises that he has made to us? How does this affect us? Well, in fact, the very idea that God has forsaken people that he promised to save that idea would undermine our security as well, wouldn't it? That would make uh, all of us very nervous. 
What would that do to the song we just heard? In Christ I stand. What about the song we sang just a few minutes ago? Is God's faithfulness all that great? Is the Lord trustworthy or not? The Apostle Paul is concerned that we might draw the wrong conclusion from what he said in that first paragraph of chapter 11. Let's just take a a quick look at what we've already read together. Uh, Paul has said that, uh, uh, well, what about God's promises? He said, well, at least a few Jews are getting saved. It's very few. It's just a remnant, but at least some are getting saved. And then in verse 6, excuse me, verse 7, he says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, God's righteousness. The elect obtained it. Uh, uh, The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Hardened by whom? We saw at that time that that's God. God doing the hardening, and it gets worse through the next few verses. God giving them a spirit of stupor. God opposing what they're doing. David's prayer as well is pretty bleak. And these are people he promised a place in eternity. What's going on? You see, Paul is concerned. He hasn't told us all we need to know. In fact, he has been devoting three chapters to this very question. Is God reliable after all? And the, the answer is he's been laying the foundation. He gave the first installment of the conclusion of his answer at that first paragraph, where he says, uh, Israel has failed but their failure is not total. That's still not very reassuring for us. We're not satisfied that a few people of us are going to make it finally. So now he begins the last part of his answer. And that answer is essentially, Israel's failure is not final. There is an unfolding nature to God's plan, and you cannot judge the end from where we are right now. That's not only true in the history of the nation of Israel, that's true in our lives as well. You could look at life right now, look at your life right now, and you might have some real questions about God's commitment to you. How are things going at this moment? Maybe not so good. But we dare not judge the end result based on current circumstances. God has an unfolding plan, and he is going to complete that plan. He's going to complete it for the Jews, Paul is arguing in our passage today, and Indeed, throughout the rest of chapter 11, as we'll see, and God is going to complete his promises to you as well, to all God's people. God is faithfully fulfilling his plan. That means that you must serve him with confidence, not nervousness, 
not uncertainty, not fear. Am I going to be one of the ones that make it? You can serve him with confidence. Paul seems to have in mind a particular way to serve him, and we'll see that as we look into today's passage in uh, Romans chapter 11. So turn there in your Bible, Romans 11, the passage we already read together this morning, verses 11 through 16. It's an indication of how committed God is and how powerful he is, how successful he is in completing his plan. Paul uses what to us would look like a, a, a point that would be an obstacle for God to overcome. What about people that reject his plan? People that reject his grace. Doesn't that kind of put a roadblock in the front of God's plan? Doesn't he have to find a way to work around that a little bit? And does, does God have to have a plan B? Paul says, no, there's no need for a plan B because God actually uses rejection of the gospel to fulfill his plan. He doesn't have to circumvent his plan or circumvent that rejection. Oh, if you're going to respond that way, then I guess I'll have to do this. He's on the same track that he has been on since the very beginning of creation. God uses rejection of the gospel, even that, to fulfill his plan. Verse 11 tells us how, particularly, in relation to the gospel. He says, so I ask, and here he presents the very dilemma that we started with this morning. I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? The stumble here is a tripping up, but the fall would be the final catastrophe. That's the end result, complete failure. Paul says, no indeed, certainly not. That is not how this is going to turn out. That is not the end point of God's plan. By no means, he says categorically. Well, then what is God doing with that rejection? Here's the answer. Rather, through their trespass, what trespass is he referring to? The sin of rejecting Christ. We don't often think of rejecting Christ as a sinful act, but that's exactly what it is. God calls people to obey the gospel, to disobey is sin. To reject it is sin. If they're, uh, rather through their trespass, he says, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And all God's people can say, amen, praise the Lord. But Paul's point is that this is not a plan B. God is still on plan A, and he even has indications that his plan all along was to include the Gentiles in the gospel. But he's doing so 
as uh, also as, uh, as a response to the Jewish unbelief. To the nation of Israel, when their Messiah came, they said no, and God said, all right, then in fulfillment of my plan, I'm offering the same opportunity to everybody else. The Jews were a very limited group. But right from the start, it was God's plan that his promises to Abraham would be a blessing to the world, not just to Abraham's physical descendants. At the same time, God has his eye on the nation of Israel. And even the offer of salvation to Gentiles, he has designed to have an impact on them. A long-term impact on them. As he closes verse 11, he says, So as to make Israel jealous. You see, at the very same time that the Lord is saving Gentiles, he is also provoking Jews, using the salvation of Gentiles, Gentiles accepting their Messiah as a way to get them to, uh, to be jealous about that. Look, they're getting the benefits I was supposed to get. I thought just rejecting them would just uh, leave everybody out, but God says no. And this provoking, this is the, uh, a hint that there is a future role for the people of Israel. It's just a slight hint so far. But why would he even be interested in provoking them? You see, he could have said, okay, you don't want it, then you're out permanently. And I'll offer it to this other group instead. See, in that case, he's not interested in their jealousy. They're done. That he is interested in provoking their jealousy says they're not done. There is still that future possibility. This provoking Israel to jealousy is actually a response to unbelief that God promised a long time before that. Paul is referring here to Deuteronomy 32.21 that says this, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And we are glad to be included in that category of no people and foolish nation. Praise God that it doesn't take smart people, it doesn't take special people to understand the gospel. That's God's plan. And that's why Gentiles, without the background that Israel had in, uh, in Old Testament truth and their legacy of the patriarchs, Gentiles without any of those advantages can hear, can understand, and can accept the gospel. And God can not only use that then to save them, but also to provoke Israel. 
Moving forward into the future view, verse 12 tells us that God can also restore his errant people. He has that capacity. Verse 12, he says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, and yes, Paul just said the same thing twice. A little bit of variation there, but it's the whole Gentile world has the opportunity to trust Christ as Savior, which means there are no excluded people. To say the Jews can get saved if they want to, and now Gentiles can get saved, that's including everybody. We're all covered. You are not an exception to that. You are in one of those two groups, and the Lord can save you. But now he focuses uh, uh, in a broader sense. He says, if their sin, which is terrible, if their failure, which is a great disappointment, God, uh, Paul expressed earlier, having his arms open, pleading for them to come, and so little response. That's a disappointment. But if that kind of negative response to the gospel can result in salvation for Gentiles, something so great, and now see, Paul is going to argue from the lesser to the greater. The lesser is clear, Israel's failure. What's not so clear to us is that the corresponding lesser is our salvation. Israel's failure There's going to be a greater possibility. Our salvation, what could be greater than that? Let's complete verse 12. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Full inclusion? What's Paul mean by that? Well, the hint has advanced here to having a reason to provoke them to jealousy and now to just hold out, kind of dangling before us a little bit, this idea of Jewish full inclusion to move from just a small remnant to what does full inclusion mean? Could it be? Well, let's look at the other side. If that's just a bit tantalizing, What about how it might affect us? Verse 12 says, how much more will that mean for us? Their failure resulted in our opportunity for salvation. If they actually start responding positively, how much more can that mean for us? And Paul doesn't answer that question here. He's going to advance a little further before this passage is done. But he's just holding it out there for us. He wants us to wonder how much more we already have salvation. What could God have in store for us? Do you get the idea? He he wants to include us in excitement about the possibility of the nation of Israel coming to Christ. 
even of individual Jews getting provoked and coming to Christ, that somehow that's good for us. Apparently, really good. It wasn't too long, very many years after Paul wrote those encouraging indications of a future for the nation of Israel that things went even further in the wrong direction for those same people. It was in A.D. 70 that the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. I mean, stone by stone, throwing over everything. In the coming decades, the Jews were prohibited from even inhabiting the city of Jerusalem. They were scattered all over the known world. And laws enacted in the empire against them. For centuries now, it has looked like there is no future hope for this people. They can't even ever become a nation again, let alone ever come to Christ. Well, that was a problem for a lot of uh, Christian theologians. They kind of speculated about that. We got this biblical dilemma where God says, oh, there's a future for Israel, and Israel, for all intents and purposes, is gone. How do we reconcile these things? Uh, They weren't sure how to handle this until a few centuries into the Christian era. The, The idea that, well, maybe we're supposed to be interpreting symbolically some of these things. And theologians got excited about that first, and gradually they taught this and it spread. And what they were suggesting is that when God says, I have future promises for Israel, he really meant, I have future promises for the church. The symbolic interpretation is that Israel symbolically stands for us. And that kind of opened the door for them to say, well, then Israel can be gone and there are no consequences. Uh, God is not unfaithful to his promises because he has just transferred them all to the church. This is what uh, is called replacement theology. It's all based on this symbolic interpretation. Israel means the church. Sadly, that satisfied lots and lots of people over many centuries. But those who say, wait, wait a minute, the Bible actually means what it says. When God says there's a future for Israel, he means Israel. You can't interpret that away by saying it's symbolic of something else. There must still be that future. Oh, but the circumstances look impossible. Since when is that a problem for God? Our God is faithful. Our God is powerful. Our God never suffers a setback. There isn't anything going on in your life right now that he doesn't know, doesn't care about, 
doesn't have a plan for. He never breaks a promise. You see, you can move forward in your life, in your relationship with Christ. You can move forward in the trials that you're facing right now with confidence in God's grace. Confidence in God's plan. Even though your circumstances may seem hard, they may seem unending, they may be discouraging. God has an unfolding plan for you as well. A rejection of the gospel might seem to be the most common response that we are witnessing that God is experiencing himself. But it's not the only response. If God can use rejection of the gospel, he can also use acceptance of the gospel to fulfill his plan. What that means practically is, in verses 13 and 14, he can redeem more people. Yes, God has a plan to redeem more people. Verse 13, Paul zeroes in uh, to to a a part of his audience, probably even the majority of his audience in his day, by saying, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Paul is referring to his own particular call. Paul, one of only a few apostles, but he's also the only one to be designated specifically an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul says, that's my assignment from God, and I magnify that ministry. I glorify it. That means Paul parades a flag wherever he goes and says, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. Of course not. That means Paul pursues that ministry with vigor. He magnifies it by striving to win all the Gentiles he can. But he also wants us to know that's not his exclusive concern. Paul was accused of that. Paul was focusing so much on the Gentiles, he must not care about the Jews. Now, Paul has his eye on the Jews as well, and he continues in verse 14 to say that, among other things, one reason why he so vigorously pursues his ministry to Gentiles, he says, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. That's God's tactic. Now, Paul says, I've adopted the same thing. But now he tells us more specifically what he hopes to achieve by that. More Gentiles getting saved. He's got his eye back on the Jews and saying, you see, you see, wouldn't you like to join them? He says that by all means, I might save some. Now that's a very hesitant expression on Paul's part. It's a hesitant expectation. What he's telling us is that in verse 13, the Lord uses evangelism to save Gentiles. 
And specifically in verse 13, evangelism of Gentiles. Paul, finding the majority of his ministry is right there. You see, that's true for us as well. God uses evangelism. I've got the gospel. I can share that with someone else. And God could save their soul. But in verse 14, he takes that one step further and says, well, God uses evangelism, even evangelism of Gentiles, to save more Jews. This was Paul's practice. Over and over again, he would go to a new city, find the synagogue, preach the gospel there for as long as they would listen until they threw him out. Sometimes that was the very first service. Other times that was two, three weeks in. But he'd always give them an opportunity. And then he would turn from them when they were ready to throw him out and say, okay, I'm going to the Gentiles. What do you almost like to say? And what do you think about that? Doesn't that kind of bother you? I hope it does. Hope that that provokes you to join us. But what he's really doing is focusing his attention on the Gentiles. Because God is interested in both. God can save both. He can redeem more souls in both categories. In verses 15 and 16, he says, God can also provide more grace. More grace in these ways. First of all, in verse 15, the Lord still has a plan to advance. Here's one more tantalizing hint about his plan for the future of Israel. Another lesser to greater presentation. He says, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. Okay, here we are again. And it's either they rejected the gospel and so Gentiles get the opportunity to accept it. Or it could also be that God rejected them. You refuse the gospel. Okay, I turn away from you and I go to to focus on the Gentiles Either way fits, both grammatically and uh, historically and theologically. But if their rejection means reconciliation for the world, and of course that means anybody in the world who decides to trust Christ, anyone can be saved. Well, let's advance to the greater possibility. What will their acceptance mean? And again, this could either be referring specifically to their acceptance of the gospel, finally, or God's acceptance of them because they have trusted Christ as Savior. But either way, Paul says, what's the greater for us? And he just left us with a question mark back in verse 12. Now he advances that thought to say, what can that mean but life from the dead. Life from the dead? He's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about the coming of Christ, the beginning of the millennial kingdom. 
somehow there seems to be a connection with the acceptance of the nation of Israel and the end of this age. That's all Paul wants to say at this point. He is going to have more to say before chapter 11 is done. But right now he wants us to know he's not done with Israel. He made some promises. He intends to keep those promises. For us today, that means he's not done with you. He's made some promises to you. He intends to keep them. Verse 16 is actually a transition verse. It completes the thought of what Paul has been saying and leads directly to what we're going to see next, the Lord willing, next week. Verse 16, the Lord still has a role for the Jews, and here he tells us why that's important. It says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Okay, well, this is imagery. The dough offered as first fruits. This is referring to uh, the reality that Old Testament Jews, and they'd, they'd, they'd offer animal sacrifices. They also offered uh, their, their dough. But they, they, they make some dough that, from which they were going to make bread, and they would take the first fruit of that, and they would give that to the Lord, donate that to the priest, bring that to the temple. Well, if that first fruit is holy, it can be devoted to the Lord. That says something good about what's still in your hand, doesn't it? The part that's in reserve. This seems to refer to the, to the first fruit here as being the remnant of the Jews that are currently getting saved. There are some. Some Jews responding to the gospel. That's the first fruit. Well, where'd they come from? They came from all the Jews, the Jews as a whole. Well, then that says something positive about them, doesn't it? Here the word holy has its basic meaning of devoted or as special to the Lord. Something special to God. And he's saying the whole nation is still special to God. His other imagery then to complete verse 16, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now this has a little different uh, image to it. Here the root was pre-existing. That's not the case for the first fruit and the lump. You have to have the lump and then you get a first fruit from that to give to God. Now he changes the image to that of a tree. And this is the part he's going to continue in the next paragraph. But you see a tree, and if the root of that tree is, in this case, in the imagery, the root is holy, so are the branches. So what's the root in this case? Where did, these, where did this tree come from? If the tree is Israel, the root is the patriarchs. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
so forth, if they were special to God, and they are, then so are the branches that have resulted. God still has a plan for Israel. It's important we know that because of the parallel between God's promises to them and God's promises to us. Years after that fateful day, Gordon Bennett's wife was interviewed, and she reflected on how, uh, how sad was their experience. She said this, I have to say, I think, after all these years, I think about all the money we would have had. The betrayal still hurts. I don't think that'll ever go away. No one is ever going to be able to say that for having decided to trust God. To place your faith in him, I entrust to you my eternal soul. No one is ever going to look back and say, he was not faithful. He will be faithful. That means you can offer the gospel to anybody in confidence that if they will respond in faith, God will save them. What a blessing that we don't have to say, now here's the gospel and you might as well give it a try. I don't know if it'll work for you, but you don't have any better options, so let's see. Now we can say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Means you can have that kind of confidence in your own relationship with God in God's commitment to you. In the midst of this world, when the prospects might not look so good, God promises he will be faithful. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for such assurance. We see, Father, the the dual call to us in this passage a passage that emphasizes the role of the gospel. Father, we have a responsibility. We have an opportunity to share that gospel, your saving grace with others. Father, we pray that you would give us boldness to seize the opportunities that you provide each day. Father, it also gives us a responsibility to be confident in you despite the challenges we are facing. Father, would you forgive us for our faltering faith? Pray that you would strengthen us with every new trial, both using the trial to draw us closer to yourself and using it, Father, to accomplish your purpose. Father, help us to serve you with confidence. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.